The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, let's open up our Bibles, shall we, to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis 21, and I'm very happy to tell you that we are going to experience a very welcomed relief here in Genesis chapter 21. Uh, ever since Genesis chapter 12, we have been waiting and waiting and waiting along with Abraham, Abraham for God to fulfill his promises uh, to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child. And today we find in Genesis 21 that that promise comes true. Uh, let me also just quickly say, by way of introduction though, that you'll notice the, the red pyramids uh, here uh, on the pulpit and on the table. Uh, and that is because, uh, if you're not aware, today is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, where we remember in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit descended upon uh, the gathered Christians and there filled them with the Spirit to bear witness to Jesus Christ after he had ascended into heaven. And uh, sometimes people say uh, somewhat inaccurately that the Pentecost Sunday represents the birthday of the church, the beginning of the church. Uh, that's not accurate actually because we have been studying in Genesis actually. Uh, the beginning of the church. Uh, because the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, are the people of the covenant, and our story as Christians doesn't begin in the New Testament, it begins in the Old Testament. Uh, the story of Abraham is the story of the people of God, the story of the church of Jesus Christ. And so, as we study the Old Testament, it is not something resigned for past realities that bear no significance today. Rather, uh, the Old Testament is our story, our family history as the people of God. Uh, yes, uh, Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost represent a major transition in redemptive history, but the church did not begin in the New Testament. It begins in the Old. And as we see what constitutes a spirit-filled church, sometimes people use that phrase, a spirit-filled church, is not most distinctly some you know, unique activity in terms of uh, strange apparitions or behavior in the gathered church. A spirit-filled church is a church of gathered people who hear and receive the word of God with faith. That's what a spirit-filled church is, who live in the obedience of the word of God. And that's what we want to be doing together. So if you're not already there, make sure you're in Genesis chapter 21. And Abraham has been waiting for 25 years now. And we have taken uh, 17 sermons in Genesis now to get to chapter 21. But what we want to do today is not just see the, the narrative of the text and the unfolding story as, as wonderful as that is, but we also want to do something of uh, peering into the mysteries of what God does and why. What God does and why. And in looking at that, seeing something actually deeply significant for our lives uh, here and now. That what we see in Genesis 21 is not just uh, thousands of year old history. It is wonderfully relevant for your life and for mine living today as a Christian believer. So we want to understand what this text is teaching us today. So let us pray and ask God's blessing on it, that the Spirit of God might illuminate our minds and our hearts. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, how we thank you that you give us the Bible. We're mindful that without it, 
that we would only know you in, in a very veiled sense. We would look at creation and know there is a creator, but we wouldn't know your name. We wouldn't know the name of our Lord Jesus. We wouldn't know what he's done for us. And so, Father, how we thank you for the Bible today. We thank you for the grace of being in possession of the scriptures. Let us not take for granted that we have it in a language that we can understand. And so, Lord, as we read it, as we hear it today, may your spirit rest upon our hearts and upon our minds and upon our ears that we might read and mark and learn and inwardly receive all that you would teach us. For the sake of Christ our Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let us hear God's word from Genesis in chapter 21, starting at verse 1 through verse 21. This is the word of God. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore and, Ab- and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, 
and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever and ever. So may he write his eternal truth upon our hearts today. Uh, let me tell you not only to have your Bible open here, but if you want to peek ahead to Galatians in chapter 4 in the New Testament, you might want to uh, put a bookmark there because we'll be turning there uh, toward the, the end this morning. What I want us to see here is a number of things, and you've got an outline there in your bulletin to, to help us. But I want us to say that this chapter is uh, really and truly one of the most important in all of the book of Genesis, and really the Bible's whole story, uh, because Genesis 21 gets lots of attention in the, the rest of the scriptures as other biblical writers uh, seek to explain and interpret for us what this chapter means and what it's all about. And we want to have that sense of the proper understanding of this chapter as well. And uh, maybe you've known this chapter. Maybe you just heard it for the first time or maybe forgotten it. Whatever the case might be, this chapter elicits a lot of different emotions from us because there's a lot happening in terms of this family dynamic of Abraham and his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And it's right that all these different emotions swirl around in us. And, you know, we have lots of questions about this text and that's good and right. We should have those questions. And it's very possible that the, the question that you have might not necessarily be addressed this morning, but I encourage you to ask it nonetheless. Uh, but we want to understand what is God doing in Genesis 21? What is the covenant God up to here as we see these things happening, the, the dynamics and drama in Abraham's household? What I want us to see is a number of things. We'll break the text down in this way. First of all, in verses 1 to 7, we'll focus our attention on Isaac, the son of covenant promise, as we see Isaac's birth. But then, uh, starting at verse 8 through the rest of uh, this section, down to 21, we'll see Ishmael. We've known Ishmael already, but we want to give special attention to Ishmael and what happens to him as we see the son of common grace. And then, uh, at the end, we'll, we'll try to tie these things together and we'll lean on the Apostle Paul's explanation of what this chapter is all about in Galatians chapter 4. So there's a lot happening here. So we want to understand just exactly what are we supposed to make of this? Uh, what is the Lord doing? What is the Lord doing and what does it matter here for us still now in 2019? So, now first of all, let's look to Isaac in verses 1 to 7. And we see Isaac, the son of covenant promise. And right away, we have the details of his birth, right? This birth that's been so anxiously awaited. And uh, we, together we waited through chapter 19 and some very difficult uh, details through there as we've been anxiously awaiting this reality of the fulfillment of God's promise a promise given 25 years ago when God first called Abram out of Haran at that time to go live in the land of Canaan. And all the way since Genesis chapter 12, we have been seeing how Abraham and Sarah struggled through the reality of what God had promised as they believed it and uh, disbelieved it, as they struggled to obey, as they disobeyed, as they walked through the fits and starts of faithfulness to God. Uh, and we've seen even them laughing when God said, you'll have a son. And they said, no, no way. That's not going to happen. But now, uh, very quickly, we see here's the son. 
It's stated so quickly in verses 1 and 2 that uh, it almost gives us whiplash, right? This birth that has been so deeply anticipated is reported just like that, and there's Isaac. So plainly it says that Sarah conceived, verse 2, and bore Abraham a son in his old age. Child number one to the 90-something-year-old mother and the 100-year-old father. Stunning reality that is so simply stated. And it seems that way, perhaps, that for as staggering as a biological reality this is, and it is staggering to think of this, the birth of Isaac was never really a question, ever. Even though Abraham and Sarah struggled to process it, it was never a matter of, is that going to happen or not? And why not? Why, why is Isaac's birth, in one sense, altogether unremarkable? And now here comes the simplest point of any sermon you'll hear. Why is this altogether unremarkable? Because God said so. Isn't it that simple? God said that this would happen. And Sarah recognizes that. She thinks about this, thinking maybe, but perhaps in verse 7, about her friends and her relatives. Who would have said this? <laughs> Who would have thought that this would be the case? Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And the inference there is that, of course, nobody. Nobody would say that. Nobody in their right minds would even fathom such a reality, of course. But the inference is that God did. God said so. Three times that very point is emphasized. You see it in verse 1, twice, and then in verse 2. It says, The Lord visited Sarah as he said and did as he promised. And then at the end of verse 2, this has happened to Abraham as God has spoken to him. Now, what is the inescapable point of that? The absolutely inescapable point here is that God is true to his word. God is true to his word. That God's word is true and absolutely true. Listen very carefully. What God says is a reality because God's word creates reality. Do you remember at the very beginning of Genesis? Genesis all God has to do to to create. All he has to do to fling galaxies in place is what? Speak. And as God speaks, the world and the universe is created. God's word creates reality. So that when God speaks, what he speaks is true. And God has told Abraham since chapter 12, affirmed in 15 and in 17, you will have a son. And this birth of this promised son is such a sure reality that as sure as the sun was going to rise that day, so surely was Isaac to be born to Abraham and Sarah. Now here's the thing. You and I are not given to be that trusting of things to be so true. Right? We're just used 
to people saying one thing and doing another. We're naturally skeptical of promises. But remember this. Remember what Jesus says in Luke 21, 33, that heaven and earth are going to pass away, but my word will remain. Is God true to his word? Yes, absolutely every single time without fail. And what that means then by way of application is that God's word is therefore trustworthy. Absolutely trustworthy. There is not a word or letter in the Bible that is not entirely trustworthy for you as a Christian believer. And there are just times when we need to reaffirm that truth because I think too often we take it for granted. Yeah, we believe the Bible, we're Christians. Let us reaffirm our faith in the scriptures as absolutely true, without error, and true in everything that they teach to us so that God is seen to be trustworthy. Even though we have our struggles to trust God, that doesn't mean that he himself is not trustworthy. Abraham and Sarah struggled, didn't they? That's the point of the story that we've been learning. That our failure and our struggle to trust God doesn't mean that he himself is not trustworthy, but that it is in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our questions, in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our fears, when leaning upon the word of God, we find it to hold. We find it to be truthful. You will never break God's word and God's promise by leaning upon it. And so therefore we reaffirm that in seasons of doubt and struggle, God's word will always, always produce what it promises. Reaffirm that to your heart today. God's word always produces what it promises. So Isaac is born. The son of covenant promise. But something very difficult happens just on the heels of this, doesn't it? As we enter into this very uh, conflicted drama that Abraham experiences. The attention in verse 8 through 21 isn't on Isaac. It's on Ishmael. And let us remember Ishmael that uh, back in chapter 16, do you remember that when God had promised to Abraham and Sarah that you're going to have a son, that Sarah came to the conclusion, well, if that's true, it's certainly not going to be my child. So Abraham, here's Hagar, my, my servant, and uh, with Hagar, uh, Abraham has Ishmael. Ishmael is the child of Abraham and Hagar, not Abraham and Sarah. That Sarah had concluded that if God has made this promise, surely God needs help having his promises fulfilled. And so in Sarah's craftiness, this is the plan. It blows up in her face, of course. But nevertheless, Ishmael is born, and with that produces great strife and tension in Abraham's household. Uh, Hagar's already been sent away out into the wilderness one time, but the Lord sent her back to Abraham's household. And in that household, there was great tension. But now there's this new point of tension. Uh, what we know here in terms of timeline, that Ishmael, at this point, the son of Abraham and Hagar, is somewhere between 14, 15, 16 years old. He's a teenager. And when we find in verse 8 the description that the child grew, that's with reference to Isaac. So Isaac is growing up and he is weaned. And in this culture, that's about uh, three years old. So Isaac is being weaned and there's a, a celebration for this that, that honors Isaac's birth and his life. And you've got a toddler and a teenager under the same roof. 
and tensions are starting to rise up here, and we see it principally with Ishmael. Verse 9, we're told that Sarah witnesses Ishmael laughing. See it in verse 9. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing during the events of the celebration of Isaac's life. Now, this is not innocent laughter, okay? This is not jovial and joyful family celebrations. Let's all laugh together. This word laughing is not laughter together. It actually could be translated as mocking. Not in terms of a you know, playful teasing. Uh, maybe your family teases each other. Uh, as many families do, but this is not playful, teasing uh, laughter. It's malicious ridicule is how it ought to be translated. Uh, Ishmael is hostile to Isaac. And you could perhaps uh, wonder why. Isaac's birth represents the fact that Ishmael has been displaced in the home. Ishmael, Abraham has been told, is not the heir of the covenant promise. This toddler, Isaac, is. And so where Ishmael has gone from being an only child in the household of the man of faith, the heir of God's covenant, he has been now displaced by this, and he looks upon Isaac with derision and scorn. And when Sarah sees Ishmael mocking Isaac, she sees to Abraham, says to Abraham in verse 10 that both... The boy and the mother have to go. Ishmael and Hagar. Send them both out. Okay? This is highly uh, inflammatory family situation, no doubt. And who is caught in the middle of all of this? None other than Abraham. And do you notice it says that Abraham is displeased. Verse 11. And the thing, the thing, boy Isaac, the teenager Ishmael, his wife Sarah, Hagar, the thing is all very displeasing, troubled, breaking Abraham's heart. Now, the point of all of this is not just to bring us into the inner chambers of this uh, ancient family's drama. It is not just to show us all of these different aspects of family drama, even though there's plenty of it. And Sarah's words to Abraham, though they seem on the surface to just represent uh, an, an angry and jealous mother, they are actually reflective of God's will and purpose for this covenant family. Now that's a hard point, but I want us to try to understand what that means. That Sarah's words to send away Hagar and Ishmael, as bitter as they seem from bare human evaluation, actually reflect the will and purpose of God's plan. Look at what God says to Abraham in verse 12. God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. Okay, that's a verse every wife loves to remember for their husband, right? Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, God is saying, regardless of Sarah's intent, the instruction is correct. Yes, Ishmael needs to be removed from your home and along 
with Hagar. And what is Abraham experiencing? The breaking of his heart. This is his son. What is he supposed to make of all of this? Abraham loves Ishmael. Do you remember back in chapter 17 when God tells uh, Abraham, you're going to have a son and his name is Isaac and he's going to be the heir of your covenant? And Abraham says back to God, oh Lord, let Ishmael live before you. In other words, I already have a son. Isn't he going to be the one to be the heir of the covenant? And God clearly tells him then in 17 and here in chapter 21, no, Ishmael is not the heir of the covenant. Isaac is. There is a clear line of difference between the two. And God, by his sovereign will, has determined that it is going to be through Isaac rather than Ishmael. The line of the covenant is going to travel. Now that is a biblical reality and it is a difficult one, but yet it is true. So what we find here is Abraham sending Ishmael away. The son he loves. He is sending Ishmael into the wilderness, never to see him again. And it's, it's somewhat confusing, perhaps, the way the text reads, especially because uh, it says that Abraham uh, put the, the supplies to Hagar and the child. That makes it seem like, you know, he's just a young boy. This is a teenager. Abraham sends him away. Now, you should ask the question, why? Why is this happening? Well, as we said, for one reason, because the line of covenant runs through Isaac and not Ishmael, but also because of this, and I want to encourage you to take this point and tuck it away for when we come to chapter 22. Because for Abraham, there cannot be a plan B son. For Abraham, there cannot be a plan B backup son. Tuck that away, and we will come back to that in chapter 22. Now, as we see all these things, it doesn't mean that God himself is not gracious. We can understand that what God does here for Ishmael is not unkind. God is certainly gracious to Ishmael, but God's grace to Ishmael represents a different kind of grace than the grace he shows to Isaac. To, to Isaac, God shows covenant grace. But to Ishmael, he shows what we call, you see it on your outline there, common grace. That God is gracious to all people, regardless of whether or not they believe or not. That God, as a sovereign ruler, is kind and gracious. Remember, Jesus says that it rains on the just and the unjust alike. That is a reference to the idea that God shows kindness to all the earth, irrespective of whether or not they are in the covenant through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is an example for us of common grace, which is itself still extremely gracious. Notice it says in verse 13, that God is going to do wonderful things for Ishmael. Verse 13, it says, I will make of Ishmael a nation of him because he is your offspring. Because you remember one of the things that God was going to do through Abraham was bless the nations and Ishmael is going to represent a nation that's going to be blessed because he came from Abraham's house. God is going to be faithful and kind and gracious to Ishmael for sure. It's the same promise that he made back in chapter 16 that he's reaffirming now. I'm going to bless Ishmael. 
And that promise is reaffirmed in this very desperate desert scene as uh, the rations run out and the water runs out. Hagar lays her teenage son there and she goes away from him because she can't stand to look upon the sight of her failing son who is seemingly dying. And then comes this gracious intervention in verse 18. I will make him a great nation. Hold him fast. And God reveals to Hagar that there are supplies and water. Verse 20 says that God was with the boy and he grew up. And we see that Ishmael grows up to be a, a strong man and he grows up uh, well. And we find all these things that God is gracious. But we have to ask this question. And you see it on the back side of your handout. What becomes of Ishmael? What does Ishmael represent, biblically speaking, if the line of the covenant runs through Isaac and not through Ishmael? Who is Ishmael and what becomes of him? Well, Again in verse 20, God is with him in a certain sense as he grows up, lives in the wilderness, becomes an expert with the bow. But you know, the Bible goes on to give us more information about Ishmael and more information about the people that descend from Ishmael, the Ishmaelites. And one of the places that we can look very quickly is in Psalm 83. And if you can go there quickly, fine. If not, just listen here for a moment. Psalm 83 verse 4 says... They say, speaking of the enemies of Israel, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. Psalm 83, verse 5, For they conspire with one accord against you and make a covenant, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites. And so as the story of the Bible unfolds, the, the people that come from Ishmael, the Ishmaelites, represent those that are hostile to the people of God, Israel. The descendants of Ishmael are distinguished from the descendants of Isaac, not just by way of the covenant, but also because the Ishmaelites represent an enemy to the people of Israel. And so, in, in summary fashion, chapter 21 represents for us that God has a distinction between His covenant people and those who are not His covenant people. Between the Israelites and the Ishmaelites, there is a distinction and there is a difference. There is a difference between the spiritual seed of Abraham and the natural seed of Abraham. And when I say that, maybe you're saying, well, you know, what, what's that all about? Well, thankfully, the Apostle Paul explains that. If we're wondering what this chapter is all about in, in the big picture, thankfully, the Apostle Paul explains it. So I want you to go over to the book of Galatians and we'll turn to Galatians in chapter 4 and we'll get the apostolic interpretation of what Genesis 21 is all about. Isn't it helpful that the Bible explains the Bible? Isn't it helpful that, that God's word is clear? Isn't it helpful that we're not left scratching our heads saying, I have no idea what this means when the Apostle Paul is going to say, let me tell you exactly what it means. Genesis 21 is explained in Galatians chapter 4, and it starts in Galatians 4 verse 21 and runs through the rest of the chapter. You'll, you'll see there in the ESV, there's the heading, the example of Hagar and Sarah. Paul is going to use the story of Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Isaac to teach a very, very important point. 
So we'll see, uh, you see this heading there on your outline. Two women, two sons, two mountains, two covenants, two destinies. Because this is the Lord's story and he gets to explain it by way of his apostle. Look at verse uh, 21. Galatians 4, 21 says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. It's, it's the story of Genesis 21. Paul says, verse 23 now, But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. The Apostle Paul says, look, here's what you're supposed to make of this. You've got two women, you've got two sons. What, is, what, is, what does all this mean? Who is, who is Ishmael? Who is Isaac? What is this supposed to represent? He says again, verse 24, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds with the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. And so Paul says, the, the story of Hagar, the story of Ishmael, is the story of bondage to the law rather than faith in Christ. It represents the way that is not the way of covenant promise. It is the way of the flesh. Hagar and her son Ishmael allegorically represent life in disobedience to Jesus Christ rather than faith. It represents a self-assured, self-righteous, self-reliant person who is not trusting in Jesus Christ. And so that way, the way of Hagar, the way of Sinai, the way of the law, the way of Ishmael represents this. But, verse 26, Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. He says, verse 28, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Paul says, here's how you're supposed to understand the family drama between Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael literally, and Paul adds this detail to Genesis 21, was a persecutor of Isaac. He was the enemy of the covenant line. That mocking derision represents hostility and persecution. And Galatians chapter 4 is teaching us that there are two kinds of children of Abraham. There are the children born to Hagar, and there are children born to Sarah. The children born to Hagar are children according to the flesh, and there are children born to Sarah who are children according to promise, children according to faith. There is a difference. Now, let me be very, very clear about something, and I think that this is a biblical reality that oftentimes we stumble over. If the Bible is true, and I hope we settled that earlier, if the Bible is true, then there are only two kinds of people in the world. If the Bible is true, then there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are believers and those who are unbelievers. 
Another way of saying that is that there are those who are in Adam versus those who are in Christ. Or we could use the metaphor of Galatians chapter 4 and say there are those who are of Ishmael and those who are of Isaac, those who are of the flesh and those who are of promise. You see the difference? There are only two kinds of people in the world. And Galatians chapter 4 and Galatians, sorry, Genesis 21 are asking the question, what child are you? Who is Isaac? He's the son of the covenant. Who is Ishmael? He's the son of common grace for sure, but not the son of the covenant. And there are only two kinds of people in the world. And as Ishmael looked upon Isaac, he came to the conclusion that this should be mocked. And this should be scorned. And by by inference, made a mockery of God himself. And so the question is, is how do you look upon the son? How do I look upon the son? Ishmael looked upon Isaac with scorn, but the question is not, in that sense, Genesis 21, how do you look upon Isaac? The question is, ultimately, according to the book of Galatians, how do you look upon not just the son of covenant promise, but the promised covenant son, the son of Abraham, the son of David, Jesus Christ. That's what the story of the Bible is ultimately all about, isn't it? How do you look upon the Son, Jesus Christ? There are those, and this is sobering reality, so let us speak of it in a sobering way. There are those who look upon Jesus Christ and the free offer of the gospel and conclude that this suffering Savior upon the cross who dies for sins is a weak, impotent person that has nothing to do for me, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I will not bow to him nor confess his name. And there are those who come to that conclusion. If that is the conclusion that a person reaches, then they are, in the Bible's terminology, a son of Abraham only according to the flesh, Ishmael. This person has no share in the covenant blessing. And loved ones, hear this very clear word from Genesis 21 that the sons of Ishmael will one day be cast away just as Ishmael was. Not into a wilderness of the ancient Near East, but to eternal destruction. But by grace There is not just being cast away into destruction. There is the covenant promise that for all who look upon the Son and receive, not with derision, but with praise and thankfulness and love, who look upon Jesus Christ with their outstretched and empty hands to receive them, to those children born of the covenant, born of the promise, born of faith in Jesus Christ, God will never cast them away. He will never send them off into darkness because he receives them into his home and there to bless them and keep them all their lives and then onward into eternity. There are children of Abraham according to the flesh, And there are children of Abraham according to faith. And all who look upon Jesus Christ are children 
according to faith. Genesis 21 teaches us that lesson. But it also teaches us to look upon the Son with love and faith. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in your word, you always point us to the gospel of your Son. And so from the Old Testament, let us also hear the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ that's been revealed in the new. And, O Lord, may we by faith look upon Jesus Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel with faith, with love, and trust. Lord, look upon our hearts today and search them and find us to be your covenant people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.